Well, good morning. I am Hart Trailer. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's been a while since I've been up here to preach, or at least it feels like it, so I'm, I'm excited. I'm a little nervous, but excited to be back up here to preach, and excited to be in John today. And of course, as you just heard read, we're going to be in the last half of chapter 2, where we see Jesus cleanses the temple. But um, I'd like to pray before we get into that, so let's pray. <clears throat> God, thank you for another Sunday to worship you. Lord, I ask that just as you direct our steps, would you direct my words right now? Let them be the words you want them to be. And would you direct our hearts and our ears and our minds to receive only the words you want us to receive? Lord, may this message this morning stir up a zeal within us for the worship of you. Would you grow us in the grace and knowledge of Jesus? Amen. So sports have a way of stirring up a lot of emotions in people, Um, and one of those emotions is anger. Uh, I'm from South Carolina. I'm a Gamecock fan, and so uh, South Carolina and Clemson, they're they're our rivals, and we have some very embarrassing moments in our history that exemplify that, but uh, uh, maybe my most favorite of those infamous moments is the 1902 standoff. Uh, In 1902, Carolina won the game, the football game, and uh, afterwards, emotions were running high. Uh, The Carolina students were just super excited about winning the game. That led to the Clemson students getting pretty angry, which led to a standoff happening. Uh, The Carolina students built a barricade at the entrance of the horseshoe. They had their guns drawn. Uh, not letting the Clemson students pass. And at that time, Clemson was a military school, so the Clemson students were military cadets. So they had their guns and bayonets drawn. They were on the other side of the barricade. Um, So pretty wild, um, but thankfully level heads prevailed in that moment, and um, nothing happened. No shots were fired, and uh, they were able to resolve the situation. But like I said, sports have a way of stirring up a lot of emotions in us, including anger. Uh, I think one humorous example is in 2010 between Auburn and Alabama. Uh, Auburn beat Alabama that year in football, and so an Alabama fan in response to that went to Toomer's Corner, which is a very sacred place on campus for Auburn students. And uh, he he poisoned the trees, the oak trees that were in that spot, which they were very sacred objects to the Auburn fans. So as you can imagine, for months on the sports talk radios and on ESPN and all that, the uh, Alabama fans were talking about it, and they loved it. They thought this guy was a hero. And, of course, Auburn fans hated this guy and were sending death threats. Um, and the guy eventually spoke out and said the reason he did it was because he hated Auburn fans so much, and he wanted them to hate him as much as he hates them. <laughs> so sports have a way of stirring up anger within us. <clears throat> now, in today's text, we see Jesus respond in a way that we only see here in the cleansing of the temple. We see him filled with this righteous anger. And obviously sports are not the reason that stirred up that anger for Jesus. So what is the reason? Why was Jesus this angry? What caused this anger that Jesus displayed? We're going to see Jesus get frustrated with the Pharisees. He's going to use some unflattering names directed towards them. But never near this emotion that we see displayed here. And then in his final hours before he's crucified, he's going to be betrayed. He's going to be falsely accused. He's going to be mistreated and beaten. He's going to ultimately be hung on a cross. And yet, we would say he'd be justified to express anger in that moment, but he doesn't. So what is it about this specific moment that bothers Jesus so much that it evokes this response? 
The reason is because he finds the people of God misusing the temple. The temple was a sacred place for the people of God. And Jesus finds them defiling it. In verse 16, he calls it a house of trade. He finds that they are misusing it and they have converted it into a marketplace. So Christ is consumed with zeal because the people of God have defiled the temple and they're not using it the way God intends for it to be used. So that leads us to the question, well, what is the purpose of the temple of God? How are they to use it? So to answer that question, we got to do a quick history lesson. So we got to go back to Exodus. Of course, the people of God are enslaved to Egypt. They cry out to God for deliverance. He hears their prayers and he delivers them. And that's what the people are celebrating here in chapter two, the Passover. It's when God passed over those who had painted the blood of a lamb on their doorposts and he spared their firstborns. But those who did not cover their doorposts with the blood of the lamb, he struck their firstborns dead. And it was through this action, it was through this Passover that God brought the people out of Egypt. He would bring them to the, to the desert and he would give them his law. And included with that law were these instructions in Exodus 25.8. Make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in your midst. That word dwell is the word tabernacle. So God says, make me a sanctuary so that I can tabernacle with you. I can be in your midst with you. So they built the tabernacle, but of course they're not in the promised land yet. So the tabernacle has to be portable. They have to be able to set it up and then tear it down as they wander through the desert and then get into the promised land and start conquering all that land and claiming it. Then you fast forward many years. We finally get to the point where David is king and he has unified the 12 tribes. They're one kingdom and he establishes Jerusalem as the capital. So now the people of God, they're no longer wandering, but they're settled. And so David says, all right, I want to build a permanent tabernacle. I want to build a temple. But God tells him no. He says, you have been a man of war. You've shed too much blood. I'm not going to let you build that. I'm going to let your son be the one who builds this temple. So Solomon becomes king and he builds the first temple. I say first because eventually we may remember the history. The people of God, they rebel. They're unfaithful. And so because of their disobedience, God allows them to be exiled out of the promised land And he sends in the Babylonians who destroy this temple. Then God is faithful. He remembers his promise. So he allows a remnant to come back and they build the second temple. And that's the temple that we see here in John chapter two. So back to the question, what is the purpose of the tabernacle? What's the purpose of these temples? It was for God to dwell amongst his people. The reason the temple was sacred was because it was the dwelling place of God and it was where man went to be in the presence of God. It was where man went to worship God and to offer sacrifices to him. So we have Jesus arrive to the temple and what he should find is the people of God worshiping. He should find them celebrating the Passover, rejoicing about the mighty works of God and how he has delivered them over and over and over throughout their history. He should find them broken and repentant over their sins as they offer up these sacrifices seeking the Lord's forgiveness. He should find them humbled and grateful that the Lord is even willing to accept these sacrifices as atonement. And he should find them waiting in anticipation for the arrival of the Messiah, the one God promised in Genesis 3, the one who would crush the serpent's head. Here's Jesus. He's the one they've been waiting for. They should be waiting for his arrival, the Lamb of God, the one who will take away the sin of the world. But instead of finding that, 
instead of finding his people worshiping, he finds that they've defiled the sacred space and they've converted it into a marketplace. R.C. Sproul says it this way. He says, it wasn't simply zeal for the temple that motivated Jesus. It was zeal for the activity the temple was designed to accommodate, the worship of God. Jesus wasn't simply zealous over the bricks and the mortar that made up this temple. He was zealous about the thing that should have been taking place within the temple. He had zeal for the worship of God. And because he did not find the people of God using the sacred space to worship God, he is filled with righteous anger. Aaron said last week that Jesus' primary concern is the purification of his bride. And so Jesus cleanses the temple in order to restore it to its proper use, which is the worship of God. And likewise, Jesus cleanses his bride in order to restore within us zeal for the worship of God. So I have a question for us. If Jesus' desire is to cleanse us in order to restore within us a zeal for the worship of God, in what ways do we need to be cleansed? If Jesus' desire is to restore within us a zeal for the worship of God, and he's going to use cleansing to do that, then in what ways do we need to be cleansed? And I say we, I want us to think individually in what ways do I need to be cleansed, what in my heart needs to be cleansed, what in my life needs to be cleansed, so that zeal for the worship of God will be restored. But I also want us to think of that corporately as Midlands Church. In what ways does God need to cleanse this church so that zeal, so that we will have a zeal for the worship of God? We are not a perfect church. There are many flaws with this church. We have little ones who run up front at the beginning and are a little distracting. We're not a perfect church, but we want to continue to grow. We want to continue being refined, and we want the Lord to use this church to do mighty things. <clears throat> so I genuinely want, you, want to encourage you to ask the question, how can the Lord refine this church? Have the conversation with each other. In what ways does Midlands need to be cleansed? But don't simply have the conversation and leave it there. Be willing to come back to the leadership and let us know. Share with us, hey, I think the Lord might be pointing this out. He might have revealed this thing. So in what ways do we need to be cleansed? So as we ponder that question, we're going to look at this text, and I want to present some sub-questions that will hopefully help us process and answer this main question. Now, first off, I want us to see that God not only demands our worship, right? He, He brought them out of Egypt because he wanted, them, he wanted to have the Israelites worship him. And he declares, I am the Lord your God. There's no other gods before me, so only worship me. So not only does he demand our worship, but he is also specific with how we are to worship him. And we're reminded that here in a couple ways. In verse 13, it says the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now that may seem like a very insignificant minor verse, But what we see here is Jesus is actually being obedient to the law of God. The reason Jesus makes this 85-mile hike from Capernaum to Jerusalem is because that was was an act of obedience. The law required that Jewish men travel to Jerusalem three times a year for three specific festivals, and the Passover was one of them. So we see here that Jesus not only worships God, but he submits himself to a very specific way that God wanted to be worshipped. And then in verse 14, it mentions the oxen, the sheep, and the pigeons. 
the reason Jesus finds these animals in the temple is because they were required for sacrifice. As you know, the people of Israel had to sacrifice animals, and God was very specific with what animals he accepted. He had very specific guidelines for those animals. There were different types of animals that served different purposes. They had to be unblemished. They had to be certain ages. You couldn't just show up with some half-dead cat that was missing a limb and present that to God as sacrifice. That would have been unacceptable worship. And then what about the money changers we see mentioned at the end of 14? What purpose do they serve? The Jewish men of a certain age had to pay a temple tax. But you couldn't, just like you couldn't show up with some random animal, you couldn't just pay that tax with any old currency. You had to pay it with a Tyrian shekel. And this particular coin uh, had the highest purity of silver in it. Most people didn't have that coin, so they would show up and they would exchange their money with the money changers to get this coin so that they could then pay this tax. So God not only demands our worship, but he is specific with how we are to worship him. He defines for us what is acceptable worship. Now, obviously, we're not bound to a lot of these Old Testament laws anymore. We don't make pilgrimages to Jerusalem. We don't pay temple taxes. We don't sacrifice animals. We don't have, we're not bound to the dietary laws that we see in the Old Testament. But the, same, the God we find in the Old Testament is the same God we find in the New Testament. And He, and only He, gets to define who He is and how we are to worship Him. So a sub-question I have for you all is this. How have I attempted to redefine God and His definition of acceptable worship? How have I attempted to redefine God and redefine His definition of acceptable worship? We live in a culture that loves to redefine God over and over and over so that He will meet our changing wants and desires. We hear people say all the time things like, well, I feel like God's a God of love, and therefore He wouldn't send someone to hell. God wants me to be happy, so I can do whatever I want. You can worship God your way, I'll worship Him my way, because ultimately we're worshiping the same God. All that matters is we try to be good and do good things and live a good life. All of those are examples of efforts to redefine who God is and redefine how we worship Him. But we need to be on guard against those lies. The only way we can identify those lies, the only way we can know the true character of God, the only way we can know what God says is acceptable worship is by being in the Word. Paul says in 2 Timothy, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God's Word is the standard for truth. So when Paul says in 1 Thessalonians to test everything and hold fast to what is good, he's saying we are to test everything in the light of Scripture and only hold to that which Scripture approves. We are not to test everything in the light of our feelings, in, the, in light of what the culture tells us, in the light of the philosophies that the world tries to put on us. We test everything in light of Scripture. God, through His Word, defines for us His character and how we are to worship Him. One small example we see of submitting ourselves to the authority of Scripture is here in verse 12. <clears throat> We're told that Jesus went down to Capernaum with His mother and His brothers and His disciples, 
and they stayed there for a few days. So we see that Jesus apparently had some half-brothers, and that word brothers could actually be brothers and sisters. So Jesus may have even had half-sisters. The reason this is significant is because in the Catholic Church, they teach the perpetual virginity of Mary. They teach that Mary remained a virgin her entire life. She never had any children with Joseph, and Jesus never had any siblings. And yet we have clear moments in Scripture like this passage right here that indicate otherwise. We need to submit ourselves to the authority of Scripture. And when we are presented with false gospels, when we're presented with teachings that contradict Scripture, we need to reject those false teachings and hold fast to the Word of God. So what ways have I rejected Scripture in an effort to redefine who God is and how to worship Him? Another sub-question we need to be asking What good and permissible things have I allowed to become distorted and now are a hindrance? What good and permissible things have I allowed to become distorted and are now a hindrance? I think sometimes we we misunderstand this text and we think, oh, Jesus is mad that they're selling animals and these money changers are here. He's actually not upset about the the actual animals being sold and the money changers and, and the purpose they serve. Those were good and permissible things. At some point in the history of Israel, some guy had an idea, hey, I think it might be helpful if we had some animals here close by the temple that we could sell so that people could buy them and make their sacrifices. Hey, people are showing up and they're not having the coins they need to to pay their temple tax. We should have money changers available to help exchange that out. We should provide these services to help assist the people of God in their worship of God. If you're traveling from hundreds of miles away and you have to bring these animals with you, that would have been hard for one. But two, they have to be unblemished. They have to be healthy. They have to match all these guidelines. So now you're having to protect these animals. You can't leave home with the acceptable worship. Halfway there, it dies and show up and God's still going to accept it. That's no longer acceptable worship. I talked about earlier, you show up with uh, not having the coins, the, the Tyrian shekel. And so being able to exchange with the money changers, these were conveniences that were helping them. These were good services provided to help them in their, uh, to help assist them in their worship of God. But the reason Jesus is upset, the reason he gets angry is because these good things have become a hindrance now. And we see that they're hindrances in two ways. First, they're hindering the worship of God. Most commentators agree that it was very likely that these vendors were grossly inflating the prices of the the animals they were selling and of the exchange rate for the currency needed. Think of it like when you go to Disney World or some theme park, right? And you buy a burger and a drink and it's like $50. And it's frustrating. Now, the text doesn't tell us that here. But the reason commentators draw that conclusion is because in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, They talked about the cleansing of the temple. And in that moment, Jesus says, you've made my house into a den of robbers. So commentators point to that and say, that's very likely that it's happening here as well. Now, for you Bible people out there, you might be thinking, oh, hard didn't mention this. But um, there is something a little odd going on in the text um, between John and the synoptic gospels. And so we do need to take a moment to address it. If you were to line up Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John and look at their chronology of things, 
the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, would put the cleansing of the temple at the end of Jesus' life. John puts it here at the beginning. So what do we do about that? What is the reason for that? Well, there's two leading trains of thought. One says that Jesus cleansed the temple one time, and for some reason, one of these, either John or the synoptics, decided to change the chronology in order to make a point. The other thought is Jesus did this twice. Now, there's not enough evidence to prove one way or the other, but in my opinion, after just looking over the text and um, thinking this through, to me, I believe that Jesus did this twice. Um, I think there, I have several reasons why I believe that. Uh, and I think that's, so I think John is talking about an instant, the first time that it happened, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and then he actually is going to do it again. And the synoptics talk about that later. And I'd be happy to talk with you all afterwards, but we're not going to, it's not going to be a lecture where we're going to go over all those details right now. Um, so, Coming back to the point, it's very likely the vendors, with the approval of the religious leaders, have grossly inflated the prices and are ultimately robbing from God's people. And so that's hindering God's people from worship. You might have people showing up where they are unable to purchase the animals they expected to be able to purchase when they arrived. Now they can't worship. But not only that, think about the bitterness that might well up in their hearts. I've had the unfortunate experience of being a part of a church where the leadership was very unhealthy. And it is very easy in that environment to become bitter. And that bitterness leads towards the hardening of your heart towards the things of God. So I can only imagine as these Jews show up thinking they're going to worship, they're going to celebrate, and then to find out their leaders are abusing them and taking advantage of them. I'm sure that bitterness is welling up in their heart, which is going to prevent them from being able to properly worship God. So these things were hindering their worship. So what about us? What are the things that are hindering our worship? And as we see with the animals and the money changers, these things started out as good, but they became distorted and now are becoming a hindrance. So what about for us? What good things have become distorted or might become distorted that could become hindrances? One of the things I love about our church is that we hold the Word of God in high esteem. We love growing in the knowledge of God's Word, and that shapes and impacts the way we function as a church. That shapes Sunday mornings. It shapes our ministries from the kids and men's and women's ministries. It shapes our community groups. This week, our community group leaders got together um, to have dinner, catch up, vision cast for the new year. And even though Vanessa and I are not uh, community group leaders, we were invited to this meal, and so we got to go hang out. And it was a really sweet time for us. And I just want to say we are blessed because these couples that lead our community groups are awesome people, and we are very blessed to have them leading our people. But the thing that was really neat in hearing them talk was they talked about the ups and the downs and the victories and the struggles they have experienced with their groups. But the thing that I kept noting that they kept coming back to is this love for God's Word. How do we rally our people around the Word of God? Not... How do we be a social club? How do we rally around interest in these other things that aren't necessarily bad? But how do we rally around the Word of God and let that shape community? How do we let that grow the community within our church? But as good as growing in our knowledge of the Word is, if we are not careful, even that can become distorted and can become a hindrance to our worship. Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 says, I can understand all mysteries, I can have all knowledge, but if I don't have Christ, if I don't have love, I am nothing. 
He's saying that I can have all the knowledge of the world, but if it's not rooted in the love of Christ, it's worthless. So our prayer needs to be the words of Peter from 2 Peter. I prayed it at the beginning. Lord, may we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I have been in churches before where they wholeheartedly pursued after the knowledge, but they weren't as concerned about the grace. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, the kind of knowledge that is not rooted in grace and love leads to pride and arrogance. That kind of arrogance or that kind of knowledge will puff us up. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying this because I think we are guilty of that. I don't, when I look back or I step back and I assess the health of our church, I don't think we are puffed up. But if we are not careful, it is very easy to fall into that trap. We must be on guard. We must be aware of that threat and be vigilant against it. So I want to take a moment to just ask you to be in prayer for our leadership. Pray that the Lord would protect us from that. Pray that he would keep us humble. Pray that he would have us rooted in the love of Christ. Would you pray specifically for our elders? Pray that the Lord would give us wisdom and stamina and compassion to lead and shepherd this church. Pray for the men who are currently carrying the load to preach. Pray that the Lord would allow us to handle his word faithfully, that we would unashamedly proclaim his truth, that he would allow us to clearly communicate his words, and that we would be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. And then would you pray for this church body? I know the season we have been in has been different, but pray that we would trust in the sovereignty of God that we would trust that the leadership he has in place is because he is orchestrating this, that the people that are here are here because he is orchestrating that. And pray that we wouldn't miss the joys that he has for us in this season. And then above all, pray that despite all of our shortcomings, all of our imperfections, that God would use Midlands Church to reach the Midlands, to advance his kingdom, to see his gospel Go forth. So the first hindrance we see is that it's hindering their worship. The second way it's a hindrance is that evangelism was being hindered. So this marketplace where these animals are being sold and these money changers, where they're set up, they're in the temple in an area that's called the court of the Gentiles. You may remember Gentiles are non-Jews and they were considered unclean. So they were not permitted into most of the temple. So this special area was open to them for them to come in and to observe the people of God worship. And Solomon alludes to this in 1 Kings chapter 8 when he prays a prayer of dedication over the first temple. And in that prayer, he prays for the foreigner, the Gentile. He prays that when the foreigner comes to this temple because they have heard of the great name of God and they've they've heard of the mighty hand and the outstretched arm of God, that when they come, they would encounter you, God, and they would come to fear your name and and know your name, just as the people of Israel. Solomon is praying for the salvation of Gentiles. He's praying that when the Gentiles come to the temple and observe the worship of God, they themselves would be saved. But we see here in John chapter 2, if a Gentile shows up out of curiosity to see what's going on and to observe what the Jews are doing, instead of seeing a repentant people 
offering up sacrifices for their sins, instead of seeing them celebrate the mighty works of God, instead of being able to converse with the Jews and to hear and learn about the Lord, instead of being confronted with the gospel, all they find is something that looks no different than the world they live in. The buying and the selling are hindering the gospel from going forth. This marketplace that the Jews have allowed to be set up was hindering the evangelism that should have been taking place instead. One commentator said it this way, it was insensitive at best and evidence of religious arrogance at worst. So what about us? What are the things in our lives and what are the things in this church that are hindering the gospel from going forth? When people come into contact with Midlands or with you individually, do they find themselves interacting with the world they already know? Or worse, would they define us as religious arrogance? Or do they come into contact with the people who are in the world but not of the world? They should observe something different with the people of God. And ultimately, that will either be attractive or repulsive to them. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, to the one were the fragrance of death, to the other the fragrance of life. So in what ways do I, we, need to be cleansed? What ways have we rejected God's word and attempted to redefine God and his definition of acceptable worship? What are the things that are hindering my worship? And what are the things that are hindering evangelism? One other thing I want to note about cleansing. Cleansing is intense and it's uncomfortable. I like to put myself in the shoes of the disciples in this moment. They've been following Jesus for probably not very long. And they show up at the temple and then that's what Jesus does. And I mean, just can you, I can't wrap my head around the emotions and the thoughts that are going through their mind. Just, what are you doing, Jesus? It's, it's pretty wild. Um, but cleansing is intense and uncomfortable. I mean, imagine how chaotic it would have been. Animals running everywhere. Tables are flipping over. Money's rolling across the floor. People are chasing their animals, chasing their money. It's chaotic. It's intense and it's uncomfortable. And when God sends us through trials to refine us, when we are in sin and he disciplines us, it's intense It's uncomfortable. It's painful. But here's the other thing that we see in this moment. The cleansing is calculated and intentional. It's not thoughtless. It's not careless. What Jesus did was the exact thing that needed to be done in that moment. If you've ever watched movies or TV shows that depict this moment, you've always got Jesus. He's real carefree, kind of cool, calm, collected. Then he shows up at the temple, and he just completely changes like he, it's almost like he's the Hulk and he just gets so angry and he just starts smashing tables and throwing things over and he pulls this whip out of his robe that apparently he carries around and he's just being crazy. <laughs> and then you have this sense like it's just this blind rage and so when he's done, he probably goes to the disciples like, what just happened in there? Like, I don't know what I did in there. And, or was the whip, was that too much? Did I cross the line with that? Like, <laughs> but that's not what happens. Before Jesus flips the tables and disperses the animals and starts telling people to go, what does he do at the beginning of verse 15? We're told he makes a whip. He comes in, he observes what's going on, and then he takes the time to go and collect rope off the ground, probably from the animals. He takes time to wrap it together, tie it together, and create this whip that he's going to use. It was calculated and intentional. It was not thoughtless. It was not careless. 
And let that be a reminder to us. When God sends us through trials, it's calculated, it's intentional, it's not thoughtless, it's not careless. God doesn't send us through a trial then go, well, maybe that was a little too much. You know, um, maybe I shouldn't have inflicted that person with that disease or maybe I should have let her keep her job. Right. I am um, the said child that was up here. I had a talking to with him afterwards and in the back. And um, afterwards, I was like, that's probably a little too rough on him. Right. But God never has that moment with us. He never goes, maybe I was a little too hard on him or her in that in that moment of discipline. When God cleanses us. When he sends us through the trials, that is the most caring and loving thing he can do for us. It's a demonstration of the deep love that he has for his people. All right, we've got a couple more verses to go. Verse 18, all of that's happened. And so then the Jews come to Jesus and they say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Notice what they don't do. They don't show up to Jesus and go, get out of here. You're banned from the temple. You're not welcome here anymore. They don't bring the Roman authorities with them and say, arrest this man for what he's done. They recognize that there is something special about Christ. They're likely thinking this man must be a prophet sent from God. And so they come to him and say, perform a sign for us to prove that God has sent you. Now, Jesus could have said, I just did one. That cleansing, that was a sign for you. One commentator said it this way, if the authorities had eyes to see, the cleansing of the temple was already a sign they should have thought through and deciphered in terms of Old Testament scripture. The prophet Zechariah prophesied of a day when there will, be no long, when there will no longer be a merchant in the house of the Lord Almighty. And Malachi prophesied, suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. So Jesus could have said, me cleansing the temple was the sign, and that's all you need. But Jesus says to them, all right, you want a sign. You want me to prove that I have the authority. I'll give you a sign. And in verse 19, he tells us that sign. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. And then John goes on to tell us that the Jews don't understand what he's talking about, and even the disciples don't really understand it until later when Jesus is raised from the dead. That's when they realize, oh, he was talking about his body. He is the temple. So Jesus says to them, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He says, destroy my body, kill my body, and I will raise it up in three days, and that will be your sign. My rising from the dead will prove that all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Not only that, when I rise from the dead, something significant is going to happen. A major shift will take place. You're not going to need this earthly temple anymore. God's no longer going to dwell here. He's no longer going to meet with you here. My body will be the new temple. I am the greater temple. No one can come to the Father except through me. You won't need these animals that you're sacrificing. They will be worthless to you. I am the greater sacrifice. I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. My life laid down will be the only sacrifice you will ever need. You will no longer need these priests who inhabit the temple. I am the great high priest. I will be in the presence of the Father seated at his right hand, and I will be interceding on your behalf. I am the great Passover. You celebrate this festival that points to me. 
through me, through my blood, the Father will pass over you and he will spare his wrath from you. When this chapter ends, we're told Jesus performed signs. Many believed, but they entrust themselves to Jesus. But we're told that Jesus will not entrust himself to man because he knew what was in man. When Solomon prayed his prayer of dedication at the temple, he said, Only you, God, know the heart of all the children of mankind. So how is it that Jesus knows what's in man? John 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is God. He knows the heart of all the children of mankind. He knows the depths of our hearts. He knows the wickedness and the filth and the deceitfulness within our hearts. I think it's fascinating to think about Jesus' response in the temple, that anger that he shows, and yet here he knows the depths of these people's hearts. He knows the depths of our heart, and yet he restrains that anger from us. Instead of saying, you know what, I know the depth of your heart. I'm not going to go to the cross. You're not worth it. Jesus said, I'm going to endure this. Despite that, John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus, the Son of God, took on flesh and tabernacled with us. Despite knowing our sin, despite knowing our unfaithfulness, he would humble himself, take on the form of man. He would perfectly fulfill the law we could never fulfill. He lived the sinless life you and I could never live. He died the death you and I deserve to die, and he bore the wrath you and I deserve to bear. This temple cleansing, it points to another more crucial temple cleansing that must take place. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, our bodies are temples. Jesus knew what was in man. He knew the depravity. He knew the sin within us, and he knew our need to be cleansed. He knew our temples needed to be cleansed. We sang it earlier, wash me, Savior, or I die. The only thing that can fully and perfectly cleanse us is the blood of Christ. And that's why Christ would go to the cross. He knew the only way I can purify my bride, the only way I can cleanse my church and restore within them a zeal for the worship of God is through the shedding of my blood. So we're going to take communion now. And if you're a Christian, then you're invited to the table to eat the bread that represents the broken body and drink the blood or drink the juice that represents the blood poured out. And use this time to pray and ask God, in what ways do I need to be cleansed? What are the things that are hindering my worship? What are the things that are um, uh, hindering the evangelism of your gospel? If you're not a believer, I want to say thank you for being here. I hope you feel welcomed. I hope that we uh, make you feel welcomed and, and make you feel like we are genuinely happy that you are here because we are. But if you don't believe this stuff, if you're not sure you believe this, then we would ask that you not take part in communion because this is a time for people who believe they are in desperate need of cleansing and the only way they can be cleansed is through the blood of Christ. Just as we saw earlier, the Gentiles were only allowed into a specific area within the temple so that they could observe the people of God worship. The time of, this time of communion serves that same purpose. This is a time for you to observe the people of God worshiping the Lord. So my hope is that this morning, 
during the worship, during the music, during the sermon, questions are coming up in your mind. And I hope you know you have the freedom to come and speak with me or any of our other elders or a lot of the people in this room. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for humbling yourself and taking on the form and the flesh of man and dying on our behalf. May we not be resistant to those seasons when you cleanse us. Help us to see your cleansing of us as your love and affection for us. And may we be mindful that our bodies are a temple. So may we echo the prayer of Solomon at the temple. When the foreigner, the outsider, the one outside of Christ comes to us, may they encounter you and be saved. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.